Welcome to Cangria, home of Canada's queer medium. My name is Luke Smith. We are still waiting for Sebastian Plant's return. He was held up in Schiphol Airport, and we are hoping that he will be back in time for next week's show. Now, uh, before we dive into uh, various other topics, uh, later today we have a uh, large uh, interview with the incredibly talented team behind A Happy Man. Uh, this is a documentary that is premiering uh, T-minus two hours or so uh, here at the Hot Docs Film Festival. Uh, we will be keeping an eye on the reaction to that as well. We interview the subject of the documentary, Marvin, but also we are joined by Sonia, the highly talented filmmaker that made it all possible. More information on that and more details as we move later into the show. But for now, I wanted to kick it off by first talking about an open letter that EGAL Canada has sent out to every municipality in Canada. This letter sent to all municipalities asked the municipalities to fly the pride flags as a symbol of solidarity with 2S LGBTQI people. Uh, really, they're pointing to how this is a powerful symbol, um, but also this is a time when people in the communities sadly still need to know that these are places that are accepting. They note in their open letter, and I'm uh, quoting here, between 2019 and 2021, there was a 64% rise in police-reported hate crimes against the LGBTQI community in Canada. The majority of them, 77%, targeted the gay and lesbian community, and 13% of hate crimes were directed at their sexual orientation. EGAL Canada's still in every class school, uh, still in every class in every school report found that 64% of students, 64% of students continue to hear homophobic or transphobic comments daily or weekly at school. In every corner of this country, we are seeing a growing trend in anti-LGBTQI hate. By flying the pride flag, municipal governments can show their commitment to equity, inclusion, and justice for all members of their community. Flying the flag is so much more than a symbolic gesture. The, the letter from EGAL Canada goes on from there, but it seems to be making the case that municipalities the, world, the country over uh, have a role to play in demonstrating that taxpayers, community members, uh, in each and every one of these communities are welcome. Now, as somebody who had a less than uh, welcome reception, were the participants in the York Regional District, uh, York Regional Catholic District School Board, these school board titles are really, you know, tongue twisters here. Uh, let me see if I can find a pretty, pretty telling short clip. This is from some of the, 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 the protesters who interrupted the proceedings at the York Catholic uh, District School Board. Oh, you want. Oh, he's enjoying it. You're enjoying it. With the, the devil is carnage. 
So this is now the third time in three months, uh, that's three consecutive board meetings, as Paolo Di Buono uh, pointed out on his Twitter account, that uh, this sort of vitriolic hate has come in and interrupted uh, proceedings at the York Catholic District School Boards. This is actually the third time, I believe, that police have been called in to respond to this. Uh, it is quite shocking. There have been reports from LGBT youth on site who felt that they were effectively being bullied by people yelling at them in the hallway, yelling at them from the gallery uh, in the uh, in the proceedings. Uh, at the very least, it seems like decorum. You know, there's uh, civil conversation seems to have been uh, running away here. So, what is what is at issue? The York Catholic District School Board was having a meeting as to uh, respond to request by, I think, LGBTQ plus students in the Catholic School Board to raise the pride flag at the school board. Now, this is not a shock. We've reported on multiple school boards. The public school system, I believe, broadly speaking, across most of Canada, does raise the pride flag as part of their school proceedings. And there are a number of pride, uh, of Catholic school boards in, I believe, the province of Ontario and elsewhere in the country that also fly the Pride flag during Pride Month, which is typically recognized in June. So this is not an unreasonable, it is not an uncommon, it is not a surprising request that the students in the York District School Board uh, are asking the school board themselves to be able to step up and fly the flag. Um, members of the community, uh, what have been loosely referred to as stakeholders, uh, they have yelled things such as uh, calling the devil incarnate, yelling shame and interrupting the proceedings. Uh, they definitely feel that uh, having a flag or some stickers is frankly unacceptable um, and uh, interrupted the proceedings uh, to make that point heard. It's worth noting that how the community, how the Catholic school boards and others are addressing this is uh, quite a cause of concern. Even in the Catholic Church itself, there is no unanimous decision as to how the teachings apply to this. The Pope himself has been very uh, forgiving of the LGBT community, very uh, much speaking to the need to welcome and uh, bring into the circle uh, LGBT folks. Uh, I believe earlier in the year we reported on bishops in the uh, Catholic bishops in Germany uh, out there blessing same-sex marriages and or same-sex unions at least. And earlier this month uh, at Trans Day of Visibility, six thousand nuns signed an open letter in support of trans and non-binary community members. Now the nuns. When they've all gathered up to say something, people pay attention. So it is not unanimous in the Catholic community. It is certainly not unanimous in the York region Catholic community. But it is unfortunate that some folks are so riled up, so pent up with anger and hate that they are interrupting proceedings of school boards to, uh, to stop a flag from being raised. Now, we will be back with more news at the end of the show, but until then, our first song of today is 
by Wake Island, and it's it's a it's a, it's. It's symbols. It's very hard to, to describe this article. It's like the heart emoji, the J, and then the other heart emoji. Um, it's worth checking out. By This is by Wake Island. You can find them online, and you will certainly recognize this song as soon as you see it. It is a collection of symbols. A bit hard to tell you over the radio, but check out Wake Island. We will be back. And just after this, we'll be returning with the interview for a Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Sterling Smith. Sebastian, uh, although in today's show, uh, he is currently still in the Netherlands as we record this interview. Uh, my understanding is that he is picking up the last of his cheese before he makes his way back to Canada tomorrow. Uh, I am 
beyond thrilled to be joined by the the two fantastic individuals on the call with me today, uh, Marvin Horvat and Sonia. Thank you so much for for joining. I've not long, like the last five ten minutes ago, finished a handsome man, a documentary that's premiere coming out at the Yard Talks Film Festival uh, in about, uh, by my imaginary watch, about an hour and a half, maybe two hours away. So it's uh, 6.45 p.m. at Hot Docs, and uh, folks can also catch it on Sunday if you do need more than two hours notice to go and see a documentary. So uh, thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining me today uh, to talk about this truly powerful um, and human documentary. I think that's what really sort of bleeds through uh, to me. Uh, would you want to quickly introduce uh, A Handsome Man and for our listeners who have no idea what uh, what I'm talking about? Yeah, I really want to because it's called A Happy Man. Oh, fucking <laughs> Moses. Sure, oh, gosh. I, no, no, oh. no, that's completely... I'm so right. flattered. I'm so flattered. I keep calling it A Handsome Man. I love and it. I, I've been looking at it all day. I've been looking no. at it all day. Written yeah. in front of me. Ah, oh, jeez. So, well, so just, just for listeners to know, it's really called a happy man, but let's call it a handsome. It was a Freudian <laughs> slip, I think. That's what it was. Just a Freudian slip. So for the sure. the documentary A Happy Man uh, is coming up at Hot Docs later today. Um, and obviously you can get a hold of it in the festival as well. And then as I mentioned earlier on Sunday, it's do you wanna just quickly uh let folks know what a happy man is is about. So uh, hello everyone. I'm Sonia. I'm a director. I'm the director of this movie uh, called A Happy Man. It's a documentary about a transgender man and his family and his story of transition. But ultimately, it is not that much about uh, like medical side of the story or legal side of the story. It is much more uh, focused on Marvin, his everyday life, his family, his relationship to his husband, Ivan, and how the things will work for them. Uh, in this period of, of time. And now I will pass mic to my handsome friend, Marvin. This is going to stick. I love it. Uh, <laughs> it follows it follows my transition, basically. We started uh, at the, uh, we started filming when I was quite early in the transition. I, uh, I was out to my friends, my colleagues, my family, but I haven't yet, like, started uh, to do any physical changes or uh, uh, on any the legal process was still on hold so and i was basically waiting in queues for for uh, getting uh, medical attention and stuff so um and then uh, we were filming in like short periods of time over three and a half years sonia correct me if i'm wrong um and finished last year yeah i think it's hard to explain that it's definitely a story of the transition of a trans man, but it doesn't really speak to uh, the politics that is happening, you know, explosively across Eastern Europe at the moment. And not just Eastern Europe, we're seeing uh, an anti-trans backlash out of the West and, and uh, sort of the vitriol, you know, globally. And maybe we'll get into that in just a few moments. But what I what I think has been beautifully captured and I think maybe Son, you can you can speak to this. Is 
the humanity in the story. You know, trans folks are so often dehumanized, spoken about in the abstract, as I'm doing right now, um, you know, and just really sort of objectified and medicalized. But this is such a human story that I found myself frequently throughout it thinking about my own relationship with my partner and my own relationship with my mother. And, and obviously I can't compare lived experiences, but I think it spoke to more universal challenges in, in a beautiful way. How much was that in your decision of how to create uh, and how to tell the story? Yeah, this was very deliberate actually. And from the very beginning, I knew that I want to uh, depoliticize the issue, or or I wouldn't even call it an issue. I would call it a a story or situation in life. And the the idea was that uh, of course I would love uh, people who are uh, from community to relate to the story. And uh, I know that I probably won't be able to touch people who are completely opposed uh, or on the other side of the spectrum. But uh, I would like to interest people who um, are maybe unfamiliar uh, with transgender people and issues and challenges and obstacles they have to overcome. And uh, so they can uh, empathize and, and uh, somehow relate to this story. And uh, me as a cisgender uh, person who lives in a heterosexual long-term relationship, uh, but we, well, uh, it was something which was, I tried to um, connect to, to uh, Marvin's uh, experience on purely, I would say, human level and uh, understand it. It's, it's basically as simple as that, you know, and I think this is actually the way how we should talk about uh, transgender rights, human rights, to relate to people and try to understand what is the everyday life like, basically. What about yourself, Marvin, when... A lot of things jump out at me in terms of how delicately your relationship with your husband was was portrayed, how carefully your relationship with your kids and family were portrayed. When you were in the midst of this, with a, with a camera sort of following you around, how how did that impact your your life? I mean, what was it like being on the other side of that? I think for me, the most important prerequisite to, to doing it at all was that uh, Sonia and I are long term friends. We knew each other long before we started doing this. And uh, it was basically just a coincidence. Uh, I Sonia was one of the free, first people I came out to because I knew that she uh, would be understanding and accepting. And uh, I also shared a lot of my frustrations. I think it happens to a lot of queer folks. When you come out and you start looking around yourself and you realize what situation you're in and you start to relate to other queer people in the community what situation they are in and you and there is this need to do something about it and it's so powerful and it's it's also a great outlet for for the stress you're in right and i think a lot of people turn to activism i did that for a while as well and i think if i didn't have kids and i didn't have such a busy life i would still continue with activism quite quite a lot 
during this time, I was like sharing all these frustrations with Sonia and telling her like, it's impossible to do anything about it. What can I do about it? And uh, then she she uh, she called me a few days later, like, well, could we like do an interview? Would you be up for that? And then it kind of snowballed into the whole project that is now, you know, that's that's been bought by HBO and, and we're going to stream it uh, on HBO Max starting, uh, starting the autumn. And I think that because it was my friend that I trusted completely, I was able to be open. And she then did the humongous work to edit those three years into an hour and a half and do it with respect to my privacy with respect to my family and yeah um i'm very grateful <laughs> to sonia for for being able to capture it in such a way i think it was about uh taking control in a way because a transgender per person is very it felt like marvin had to justify himself and his feelings to to to, to officials to many gatekeepers who are necessary part of this whole process so bizarrely so even though i was in control in a way as a person who was telling uh, and creating and reflecting your story in a way it was about taking back the power to speak your mind and telling who you are to the world and telling that you basically can control your story and can control the way it unwraps I think what jumps out at me, and I hope that folks go and and either see this at the Hot Docs uh, Film Festival or Bell Owned Crave uh, is the distributor for HBO here in Canada. So anyone who has uh, Crave or Bell will hopefully be able to catch it later on. But I was talking to a younger friend of mine and we were talking about queer movies and it was heartbreaking to be like yeah for a long time all the good gay movies people died <laughs> like it was it's it's depressing like there is there is no happy ending for gay people for a long time and you know queer cinema reflected trauma and 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 darkness and you, you know it's hard to to choose that and i was concerned that maybe this would be a similarly depressing ride and it wasn't it wasn't it was very thought-provoking I think one of the things that you that you kind of get to is what does it mean fundamentally to be happy and what are your relationships with each other fundamentally based upon and Marvin your relationship with your husband Ivan I think was I mean he's a keeper you know and it's just like that very much came through and sort of bled through and and it's awkward because obviously the 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 documentary is such a personal story that it almost feels invasive to ask questions about it but how are things now i suppose is maybe where i'll 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 end that monologue yeah that's that's the beauty of it they're pretty much the same i mean you know if you ask anybody who has kids at that age you know seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever. It's just kind of, in, in Sweden, we call it the wheel for the squirrel, you know, the hamster, you have the hamster wheel, right? It mm -hmm. like, you like kind of continue, you know, and uh, I think we're very much at that stage, but uh, I think we are very content 
uh, it just works. Um, yeah. <laughs> I will add that one of the things that I wrote down, which I thought was hilarious, was uh, Ivan was talking about how, so my, correct me if I'm wrong, but Ivan is a cisgendered heterosexual man who is your husband. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm that, seeing that's how nods. he identifies anyway. Yeah. So. But I bring it up because it was he was talking about how he's perceived by others. And he said, it's as important to me as if I was perceived as Italian. And I just thought that was, <laughs> as someone from Europe, I'm like, yes, that is, you know, in terms of the, the, the consequence and impact. What you've balanced so well in this documentary is the nuances in how that transition has impacted your own life but also that interplay with friends and family, particularly family and, and, and how that kind of all came together. To go from all those interviews and, and compile that into an hour and a half and still capture the breadth of nuance that you have, I mean, that sounds like it was you know, a significant task. Yeah, thank you very much. For, for acknowledging that <laughs> it, it really was, it took us uh, like six months or or seven months or it was like ridiculously long. We were editing it and we had like eight versions, I think, but we were slowly getting there, you know, like no major changes, just like little tweaks here and there. Uh, yeah, it was, but do you know what? Like, uh, not 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 uh, such a long time ago, I read uh, the very first synopsis of the film, which is like small, uh, short blurb you write in the very beginning of the process. So it was like five years ago. And what struck me was that it actually fit fits the 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 result, you know, like we could have used it basically as a blurb for the uh, made film. So I think that, Actually, since the very beginning, I had a very clear vision uh, where I want to go with this film. And uh, it probably also connects to uh, the fact that I'm an anthropologist. So so this somehow probably um, influences my, my perspective on, on things and the way that I focused on everyday life and relationships and like little subtle changes in the dynamic, like relationships, dynamics and so on. But uh, yeah, I knew uh, where I want to go and what are uh, like topics and uh, things I want to address and where I don't want to go. So for example, I was very particular how to uh, work with uh, the topic of sexuality and, and intimacy. Uh, as I think that uh, in transgender stories, people always tend to uh, be interested in, in like sexuality and, and this part of uh, relationship and, and life. But uh, people who live together for 20 years have very complex relationship and of course sexuality and intimacy is part of it but there is so much more to it you know and i don't like uh, it to be reducted basically to this and it's in a way extravaganza you know that you want to like it's not the way to go i think 
So I, I, I think you've hit on something there. There is a perception that trans bodies are public property in the trans debate that happens. I, especially being as close as we are to the states, the the rhetoric around, you know, investigating children's genitals for school washrooms, for example, is is an extreme, but it is very much something that has come up, and just that 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 uh, perverse uh, intrusion onto somebody's life. I, I liked how you handled it in the film where I think you were talking about uh, the books that you've written, Marvin, and uh, you you asked the question, and I think you say, I'm not talking about my sexuality. It, it, was, a, it was a funny line and it moved on. And I, I, I think that I had a lot of respect for that because I think it reiterated that personal and that private, you know, and, and I think that, that that drawing that line again for the trans experience in terms of like yeah this is there are some things that are certainly public discourse but there are a lot of things that really ought not to be that's why i actually kept my question there in in that particular Fantastic. and i and i use this every time i asked something inappropriate i kept it there you know so so that people uh, who are watching it know that it's them reacting to my not so appropriate question or nosy question in a way and that it's not i think that's important for me as a filmmaker to to let to know people that it's me meddling in things basically at those points so marvin i'm gonna i'm gonna pivot to you because i think in the scene where you're in a discussion with a friend you talk about how in every room it's like being a disruption and and that I think really jumped out at me, and that that must have been, frankly, exhausting. Um, you know, is that uh, is that still the case, or is it more that it's the handsomeness that's the distraction now? It's definitely the handsomeness. Now, <laughs> I think we still do stand out, especially if we go out as a family, uh, because now we are like gay-ish couple with kids, right? And I. Um, and you know, the way I look right now, I don't know, uh, there is this whole thing about, with trans people about passing and not passing. And I, 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 I think the whole debate is also sadly very much driven by the fact that we are pushed into these little boxes, you know, like you have to be, you have to be trans enough to deserve transition. So you have these gatekeepers at the trans clinics and these uh, all these, you know, legal uh, legal things that you have to go through. I don't actually don't know how it is in Canada, but uh, some European countries have started uh, accepting laws that allow self-identification, which means that as a trans person, you can basically say, I am a man. And the state will change your legal gender. And that's it. You don't have to be psychiatrized. You know, you don't have to be labeled as anything else. You can you can just be trusted as a, a person who has the right to, like, express who they are, right? But in Sweden, it's still not the case. So you are, like, still pushed into these little boxes and you are always, like, judged and observed and you are like your privacy is invaded on on the on the most intimate level so 
I don't know. I, I like, you know, there was a, there was a period of time when I knew that I looked obviously queer. It's like anybody who looked at me saw that, okay, something isn't completely right with these gender roles there, you know, something's going on, right? And during this time, you kind of uh, know that when you go somewhere, when you enter room, you will have certain looks, you will have certain reactions that you have to deal with. And I do, either you filter them out or you address them, but you always have to deal with them. So in a way, yes, it was exhausting. Um, from another perspective, uh, I think it has also taught me a thing, and this is actually not from my head, this is Laver and Cox. Basically, we are trained to all the time, like, evaluate or estimate danger, right? You, you, you go into room and you look at people and you go like, potential partner, danger, I don't care about him. You know, you do uh, automatically, not consciously, you do this estimation, right? And as a trans person, you disrupt that. You, you, you make it impossible for people to categorize you if you are visibly queer, right? So they see you as danger, even though you're not dangerous at all. They just automatically go like, what's that? That's dangerous. I'm uncomfortable. And it's your fault. You're, but as a trans person, you enter a room and you have to question yourself. Am I in danger from these people? Can I come in here? Can I go to this toilet? Can I go to this changing room? Or is it just me being anxious? Is it just me being nervous and uncomfortable, right? You question yourself all the time and you train yourself to like really listen to people's reactions, really try to read them. And I think that, you know, if if it were the other way around, if the people really like tried to ask themselves, why is this person making me uncomfortable? uncomfortable? Are they really dangerous? Or is it just my prejudice? You know, is it just my discomfort? I would make it life a lot of easier for everybody else. Anyway. The sad reality <laughs> is that incidents of anti-trans violence uh, in Canada are significantly up. And I think that that is likely true in, in Europe and uh, in... Uh... One of the things that jumped out at me near the start of your documentary and I, and I kind of kept a, a sideways eye on it throughout it and and maybe this was a, a focal point or not and it is around performative gender and the idea of yeah and I think you brought it up a little bit here around uh passing privilege did you feel well it's sort of a two-part question did you feel that you have to be more masculine in order to kind of demonstrate the point and my follow-up to that is it, how did that play out with your husband Ivan you're completely right it was there and I'm very happy you picked on that there's so many facets to this so many sides to this question <laughs> in the beginning I didn't really know what I was doing I was like okay because in Sweden you have already deconstructed the gender roles as much as possible right it's like there's been this whole emancipation process feminism is a really powerful movement in Sweden and you have like uh, really in that, in the sense, quite evolved society when it comes to the self-awareness, you know, what is patriarchy and all of these issues that, that the issues that women face in a society. So um, from this point of view, I think I had it a little bit easier because it was like already, it wasn't dramatic at all. It wasn't about like trying to fit in into some kind of uh, masculine role because there was no set masculine role you know the the people that i knew here the friends that i have here 
despite the fact that David says they didn't have this typical like you know who has the pants on at home you know kind of kind of division you know uh but at the same time i was questioning a lot about like okay what are the parts of because i i felt like i have to get rid of some parts of the femininity right i'm transitioning i have to get rid of my feminine traits like that was like the first kind of thought that i have and then i realized that the traits that I was actually getting rid of during the transition weren't at all like typical female characteristics. There were like things that I would want to get rid of in any case. Stupid habits that you pick up during your life that you would never question, you know, the, the, the things that came with my upbringing, you know, as a Czech person, as a teenager in the 90s in a society that was very pink and blue, you know, and, and a gap in between. Um, so, I mean, if I were a woman, I would have wanted to get rid of those as well. So it kind of made me look at gender as a something else completely. I don't know if it was uh, frustrating in the filmmaking process because I think I could count how many words I even said on one hand. Was that a challenge to to balance not prying but you know because obviously the relationship formed a key sort of common thread throughout the the documentary. Was it a challenge to make sure that uh, Ivan's perspective was was accurately portrayed uh, for, for a man of few words? Well, I'm still not sure if we did it uh, right, but I hope so. Uh, yeah, well, do you know what? When we started, of course, I uh, focused on Marvin at first, but uh, very soon I uh, it came to my uh, mind and perception that uh, I have to focus on Ivan, uh, I would say even equal, equally in the story and uh yeah well for the whole time he kept telling me he he basically stayed in the same kind of position and he kept telling me for my like prying and, and nosy uh questions he was like i don't know you know i i will feel like we we'll see when we get there <laughs> you know like i i don't know how i will feel and uh I did not object to that because I felt that he's actually very honest in, in that it is not something that he is not not uh, trying to uh, avoid answers. He's basically really genuinely in that position. And at some point, like uh, we didn't know when we will stop shooting. I knew that we will probably stop when uh, the visual change will be visible on camera, which is a very simple solution, but it in the end seemed to work because as uh, you changed Marvin, you things started to wrap up, I would say, naturally by themselves. When we were shooting, when it was our last time in Sweden shooting with the crew and I asked Ivan like, okay, so I can't. I keep asking you the same question. So please answer me. How do you feel? So like things changed. Marvin has beard. <laughs> like everything's uh, everything changed basically. So so how do you feel? And uh, he said, yeah, you know what? 
Yeah, well, well, it's probably behind us. I don't care anymore. <laughs> and I was like, yes, <laughs> but Jeez. yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the the film for you, but uh, there's this last conversation I have with uh, Ivan. Uh, sitting at the pier after his uh, run, uh, and I'm I ask him so so. How do you feel? And he answers, and I won't tell you uh, what 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 does he say. You both know because you you seen the movie, but the way he answers me, I it like it uh, blew my mind <laughs> at the moment. Uh, when we were sitting there, because this this person who really doesn't like to talk about his feelings, and it's something which is like uh, not something which he would do normally, uh, he expresses himself in the most simple and beautiful way, and I had literally tears in my eyes. So that made me really happy, and and that's for me. The essence of happiness, basically, simplicity of of human feelings, it's beautiful. I think that that's something that really, and you know, when I started the interview, I, I mentioned how it was the humanity in this documentary that is so palpable, you know, and it is the how people evolve after significant changes, and I think it is so. I think that anyone listening to this can easily identify with some of those experiences in terms of major changes and how that's impacted yourself and, and those that you love around you. And I, I think that the 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 beauty of that storytelling is incredibly well done. So congratulations, Sonia, for, for a, a fantastic job on, on creating that. But yeah, I cannot recommend it enough to anyone out there to go and in you know t minus 60 minutes if you're uh you can hot foot it to the toronto hot talks uh premiere uh if not uh, if you're on toronto on sunday uh, may 7th uh, around 8 p.m you can catch it there if not uh you got picked up by hbo max so congratulations on that that's excellent news and uh bell's crave should have that uh, touch wood um very soon uh, as well are there any closing comments that you'd like to share with uh with our audience just uh keep an open mind and i think that this film is really for everyone basically so just come and watch it for yourself and thank you for this interview this was we had plenty of interviews and this was actually you I shouldn't say that, but the best one. Thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I think it comes from, you know, knowing the, the threads to pull on for sure. Well, thank you both. My next step is to actually um, get a hold of some of the books that you've written, Marvin. Uh, the the excerpts oh alone ah. <laughs> were, uh, were enough to pique my interest. Approach it, you know, when you, when you go to a really good Asian restaurant and you don't know any of the... Any of the the things on the menu right mm -hmm. and and you just see the number of the chili peppers okay just 
pick one with with the least number of chili peppers as a first time. Okay? <laughs> That's my only recommendation. <laughs> Gotta work my way into it. Okay, noted. Well, thank you so much uh, again. Everyone should go see a happy man, and uh, we will be back just after this. If I say please a thousand ways, would you stay with me? If I say thank you, thank you, thank you, would you stay? Could you stay? I'll give you a million reasons why if you would just stay with me. I would grow wings, I'd learn to fly if you'd stay. Take a trip, trip back in time and space I'll erase all trace Of shout of the rain Of sunlight the flame Of seeds of shame Such a shame And you and I Are ships that were just passing by Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is still Luke Smith. And uh, when we recorded that interview, we very much thought that Sebastian would be joining me back in the studio. However, he was unavailable. I want to turn now to a report issued by a rather um, sort of uh, out there reporting organization. It is His Majesty's Inspectorate of the Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services 
or the HMIC FRS uh, for short. Uh, now, this report by the in Inspector Con uh, Constabulary of the Fire and Rescue Service was commissioned by the British Mayor of London, Sandy Khan, who, after eight years following the Stephen Port uh, serial killing, so Stephen Port was a gay man who killed young gay men in London between 2014 and 2015. Um, he was arrested eventually, and they has been very, very critical of the police. Now, what this report by the uh, Inspectorate of the Constabulary of the Fire and Rescue Service, that is a, that is a tongue twister, uh, they have accused the London Metropolitan Police of a calamitous litany of failures. That is a calamitous litany of failures. Most notably in the 139-page report, um, they were critical of the London Metropolitan Police's response, their oversight of junior officers being poor, their record-keeping being unacceptable, uh, the use of intelligence is frankly inadequate. Uh, some constables reported that if they're able to draw the line between two crimes, it has more to do with luck than it has to do with judgment. Uh, this, for example, those who aren't familiar with the serial killer Stephen Port in London, he killed four young gay men, and some of the police that responded to the uh, these murders were responding to more than one of them, so they were responding like they they were they were out more than one, and yet lines were not drawn. Now Sadiq Khan, the prime uh, the mayor of London, has now echoed uh, calls by the public, demanding a public inquiry into how the London Metropolitan Police investigated and uh, particularly the failings of individual uh, officers potentially, uh, but also the systemic failings of the London Metropolitan Police. It seems that some of the recommendations made to improve the London Metropolitan Police uh, have been very reluctantly uh, followed. There was an independent review by the Baroness Louise Casey, who found recently, the uh, I think it was a couple of months ago we reported on this, that the London Metropolitan Police was institutionally homophobic, misogynistic, racist, and offered other forms of discrimination in the service. And uh, harassment was very often just ignored. This, on top of the coroner's report into the murders by Stephen Porter, also found that the London Metropolitan Police had uh, failed. The former police commissioner, Chris Hiddick, eventually resigning in amidst all of these scandals. Whether or not this new report that founds yet again failing by the London Metropolitan Police will lead to any changes in the, the largest police force in Britain uh, in terms of how they respond to the LGBT community and LGBTQ murders uh, remains to be seen. But this is relevant to a Canadian audience as well. And the reason why this is so relevant is because the Bruce MacArthur murders happened around uh, a very similar time frame. I believe it was 2010 to 2017. Stephen Porter was operating from uh, 2014 and 2015. Now, it's worth noting 
that the Toronto Police Service went on a bit of a wild goose hunt looking for a non-existent cannibal for a short period of time. And the independent judicial review into the Toronto Police uh, response on the Bruce MacArthur murders can only be described, quite frankly, as utterly scathing. The service opted purposefully to not participate in a national missing persons database, meaning that drawing connections between all of these missing peoples was like blood from a stone. Toronto Police also at one point, uh, there was a quote that sort of cured around the world by then police chief Mark Saunders, who said, uh, and I quote here, we knew that people were missing and we didn't have the right answers, he told the Global Mail. And he goes on to say, but nobody was coming to with us with anything. Now, what was broadly described as completely tone deaf by at the time Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders uh, in terms of the Toronto Police response has even further been criticised in the Independent Judicial Review, which found that Toronto Police Service repeatedly ignored input from members of the community, many of whom were advocating for awareness of the fact that there is a serial killer, Bruce MacArthur, or there was, operating in the Toronto Village for a number of years before TPS eventually, finally found him and arrested him. I say uh, uh, detained him, I should say, because they had already previously arrested him and then let him go again before he made subsequent murders. So Toronto Police Service certainly bungled that particular case uh, and the Ind Independent Judicial Review was, as I mentioned before, scathing. The leadership of Toronto Prior, uh, Police at the time being the, at the time, Chief Mark Saunders. Uh, people now recognise him as I believe he is now running for the Mayor of Toronto uh, seat. So, the, the London Metropolitan Police in London looking at how can they fix their mistakes following the... Stephen Port murders. Now, whether or not Toronto Police is also looking to follow up on the recommendations of the Independent Judicial Inquiry, uh, we're going to reach out to them and see what improvements, if any, have been made. But both of these these uh, serial kills happened at roughly around the same time, and both police services were ignoring the gay community, much to a terrible, terrible consequence. Unfortunately, there were other news stories that we haven't had time to catch up on that we will catch up on uh, next week. Earlier, you heard the uh, fantastic track by Meishi uh, called Nothing Lasts Forever. And we're coming now to Holding On by Jolly Wolf. I've been Nick Smith.